Welcome to Survive in Society with Tiso and Chantelle. We've done a road trip to the University of Oxford to visit Professor Danny Dorlin. We were so excited to be here that we got straight into the conversation. Um, we were, we've talked about Brexit, austerity, histories of empire, voting patterns, what statistics. else? Statistics. I never liked statistics. No, I love Danny them. makes you like statistics. I like, I, I literally... You was on the train talking about SPSS? Yes. Horrendous. <laughs> Why, I love it now. I, I'm going <laughs> to go, go back and do it again. It's the future. <laughs> Cheers. Enjoy. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel and Tiso. This season's broad theme is... Reconfiguring whiteness. How do you piece back effectively a country that's so yeah. divided? The nice thing, but it was divided before. It was just nicely all hidden. Right. <laughs> yeah. so, so it's kind oh, of... Okay, there's yeah, lo- there's lots good. of positive things about all this. The mainstream narrative is it's, we're all very negative. Yeah. So even from... Like when people talk about when they prorogue parliament, so they're going back to the civil war language, yeah. the splitting of the country, and it's 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 so, it's so final. Yeah, there were certain times when the elite and the establishment just get it wrong, mm. and they got this wrong. Mm. And the last times, maybe the most famous one was World War Two, when people came back from fighting World War Two, they were just expected to vote for Winston Churchill. He mm. expected to win, and they didn't. Uh, and the reason that they didn't was because the British establishment had mugged it up twice. The First World War was supposed to last a few weeks, kills millions, mm-hmm. didn't even learn from that, engineer a situation which leads to a Second World War, they have to go and fight it again, mm-hmm. and you can't have any trust in the people in charge. And so bang, you vote in a different government. This is similar. So you don't know where people are going to go, but the idea that the Conservative Party is a party of trustworthy, really able individuals who know what they're doing at the top. You know, all my life I've been arguing that they ain't, mm-hmm. but it doesn't get very far. You actually need them to completely fall flat on their faces mm-hmm. to demonstrate that people who you think sound authoritative and clever are not. And the only way of really demonstrating it is this, is Brexit. You know, so Boris going around pretending he's having negotiations, um, it there will still be 30% of people who will always think that Boris is some kind of genius because he went to Eton and he did three years as an undergraduate at Oxford. Mm. Even in Parliament, the Labour MPs called him a scholar. You heard that? <laughs> so it's an undergraduate bloody student. Mm. But that's 30%. They're old and they're dying out. Mm. Um, and it helps, I think, for younger people to see that the model of who should be in charge just doesn't work. I would tend to agree, and I'd, I'd hope that time is a corrector, but when I hear young people, like, I heard that I was watching TV, I think this is anecdotal, mm. obviously, this kid was 19, she's saying, like, Margaret Thatcher was great. Mm. And I'm like, you, you, don't, you don't understand, you, you haven't read a book, you haven't, read, yeah. you haven't taken any time to research, but you're, you're on TV as a, as a focus group talking about yeah. young people and conservatives, and your first people you're putting as good examples is, Margaret Thatcher, and you're talking about Churchill, but with no kind of understanding of what Churchill, yeah. why he didn't win World yeah. War Two election yeah. when he was a shoo-in for he yeah. should he should have won. Yeah, but he still kept the reputation. You know, it's going to be another fifty years before Churchill's reputation for what he actually did in his life becomes commonly taught history. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. Hmm. Um, it's difficult to see how we're going to be able to avoid it at this stage. Yeah. Well, you go further back in times of Churchill. You go fifty years, hundred years, hundred fifty mm-hmm. years earlier. Mm-hmm. And we're no longer saying Lord Palmerston wasn't he great. You know, we go Lord Palmerston, he liked his gunboats and he shelled Hong Kong and he flooded mm. China with opium. Mm. And because there's less skin in the game, history does eventually become more, more truthful. Where it's trickiest is where it's involved in current events. So there's been a huge lobby 
since Margaret Thatcher died to try and create a fake history of this very weird woman whose dad owned two shops in Grantham, who was the alderman. Uh, she was in the top 1% of that town. She wasn't a poor grocer's daughter. Mm. She turns up at Oxford only because somebody else failed a grade, so she wasn't a genius. Um, she married into money, which allowed her to have a career. And you can go through and through. When she was first elected an MP, she voted with five other men to restore birching in the Navy. That's extremely weird behaviour. What is birching? Uh, beating them with sticks. <laughs> yeah. But what? Yeah. 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 So she was not normal. And and then, of course, what she did and what the people who were put her there did and what they what they backed was mass unemployment, a price worth paying, completely destroy split, split Britain, take it from the second most equitable country in Europe to the most unequal. Highly, highly successful from their point of view, but not something um, to be celebrated. And the same is true of Reagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reagan massively increased US debt, uh, usually increased homelessness, destitution, and so on, but they build Reagan libraries. And, it, and it's it's annoying because it stalls how long it takes to get to the truth. It's mad. I, it's only re- more recently that I read, I think, uh, in Angela Saini's book, <clears throat> that he was basically a eugenicist as yeah. well. Yeah, Reagan was, and he, and he loved talking about black welfare queens. That was his kind of little trope. Some, right. Um, so he made up a kind of enemy within, which was a black welfare qu- queen. But he comes from an era of, you know, he's quite old. Mm. Um but so was Thatcher eugenicist. Um, she famously said about letting tall poppies rise. She absolutely believed in the 11 plus because it sorted people like her out. She thought she was differently able and that some people are destined to rule uh, because they've got the special genes. And that, that, that was her belief mm. and it was Reagan's belief. And it's still the belief of quite a lot of people. A lot of people. But yeah. I, I think it carries that kind of those seeds carry that germ of that kind of neoliberal spirit of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's kind of but you should pull yourself up, but of course only as far as they think you can go. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get any higher, mm-hmm. that's not their fault yeah. because you didn't have it in you. Yeah. And they think they're at the top, like Boris says, because they're a top cornflake. Mm-hmm. So Boris Johnson, the PM, believes he has special abilities. Mm-hmm. Dominic Cummings, his advisor, has written about his own special abilities and how, in effect, he's in the 1% of most gifted and talented and and if you if you believe that you are inherently in your head massively superior to 99% of other people of course you're going to behave in terrible ways it's a bit like how we treat animals mm-hmm. you know because we don't think chickens are like us we're happy to lock them in cages if you have the same belief about other human beings it's easy to do things like start a war mm-hmm. um, it's easy to condemn people to having to live shorter lives the kind of irony is Europe's history is based on moving away from that notion they have this inherent right to govern it's like naturally ordained from them and we like it's famous the age of revolutions and all this kind of stuff Europe this is European history I'm always puzzled how do we end up back at all this same kind of thing I think you always will do so you can take a very long 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 view of it over millennia and we tend to oscillate between times of greater equality and there were long periods of that in human history and then some greedy people are allowed to be greedy and not controlled. Then what you tend to get is somebody starts a new religion. Um, so almost all world religions were started at a time of great inequality, and they almost all involve about camels and eyes and needles, and you won't <laughs> go to heaven if you're rich. Um, and it goes back again. 
So it, it's it's a kind of up and down thing for humans. I mean, so in theory, the kings and queens were chosen by God, and, mm. then, and they exist across Europe. Then they decided that they had different ideas of God. So you got some Protestant and some Catholic countries, and then lots of fights. Then Charles Darwin comes along, and of course he comes along in the country that was richest, which is why he did it first, <laughs> and suggests that species may not have been put there by God, but something else might have happened, and he had a big argument with a bishop just down the road from here. And then immediately what happens is because he, he writes a book, and the subtitle something like, no, that's not survival of the fittest, but the struggle for the favoured races, immediately people at the top of British society decide where well, we're the richest in the world so we must be the favoured ones mm. the selection of the fittest has chosen us and eugenicism comes out of a move away from thinking that God ordains people to be at the top to people who are at the top because they're the fittest mm -hmm. and, Biology, and, yeah. and Europe is at the top and is the richest because it contains the most superior white human beings it's that quick, it didn't take very long at all mm. um, whereas Europe was at the top I mean, the funny thing about Europe is it was at the bottom for a millennia, mm -hmm. if you measure. Yeah, yeah 100%. There was nothing here. Though when we try and construct histories, we got to go all the way to Athens, which is hardly in Europe, only mm -hmm. just. In fact, it's only in Europe because we needed it <laughs> as some kind of ancient history. So this was the arse end of the world. It was a place where the meat went rotten, so you had to try and find spices. A place with the worst life expectancy, but because of the ocean currents, it was also the place where if you set off in a little boat, Portugal mm -hmm. and set enough little boats off eventually you turn up in the Americas and if you turn up in the Americas with your superior germs then you wipe out so it could be a tenth of the world's population yeah. um, exchange, yeah. and silver mm -hmm. and the, the amazing thing for Europe was that the one thing the Chinese needed was silver they didn't need anything else mm -hmm. and the one thing you could get from America was silver Bang, bang, suddenly the white man's at the top. I think, in, especially in Black History Month, that kind of potted history mm. that you just gave is a great way to show that history can be told in different, in different, mm. from different perspectives. And the perspective yeah. that we've learnt by rote is a very Eurocentric one. Yeah. And that Eurocentric one puts Europe in a position that, that it never really was, even by its contemporary standards. Like, yeah. But, but also, the reason, I mean, the, the reason I'm recounting that little potted history is it, it's crucial at the moment to climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, because we're trying to understand with records of carbon why did things suddenly alter not long after 1492 mm -hmm. in fact a lot of carbon was absorbed and a lot of carbon was absorbed because the people who were farming in Americas were wiped out mm -hmm. so the nice thing I know I'm a ridiculous eternal optimist <laughs> the problem with having a fake superior history is it doesn't fit the facts and in particular it doesn't happen to fit the facts about human pollution of carbon which matters now mm -hmm. so one of the ways in which we're getting history retaught at the moment is through science actually trying to explain what, what really went on at, at that time mm -hmm. and huge movements of people you know what did Liverpool have going for it it had nothing except for the power so it could send ships to Africa the ships go across and they bring the cotton back and it's, it's not that hard to debunk but this is something that we've been talking a lot about on a podcast recently like so much of this that we're in we're sat in now even in this room is built on a lie yeah to unravel that it's just seems the pushback to that is just insane because it's like questioning our entire well, well the, 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 dan the danger is that people will think just because this is a lie it's very easy to share the standard English history's lie 
then whatever you come up with next or something must be a lie. That, that's my, my, my big worry is that we're actually sitting in what used to be the girls' school. So just above there is Oxford Central Girls' School. And if you look at the stone it was built out of, and you think of the era, um, then you can work out where the money must have come from. And you can do this in any town in, in England at the same, same time. But, and, and, and I think what you said speaks to a wider problem. Like, like I said, we understand most of it's built upon lies, right? But if you say a lie long enough, it becomes the truth. But if you start saying one thing's a lie, well, what is the truth? Yeah, and, th and then the problem is you then begin to get all wild kind of theories about how the world is organised and the secret conspiracy of whatever and so on. Um, but I, I do think people have it in them, and we've released people. Yeah. So this was the only girls' school mm -hmm. in, in, this, in this town, only large girls' school 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. That's the vast majority of people you wouldn't allow to go to school. Um, it's only been a hundred years where we've actually let everybody go to school, go to school to 14 or 15. Half all the girls in England go to university now. It's an incredible change. And it, I'm not saying people are taught necessarily very well in universities, mm -hmm. but the key thing is that they're told that it's okay to learn. They're, they're told not that they... Uh, all my great aunts, my granddad went to university, all the great aunts went into the mill at 14. Um, and there's no point learning to read or write because you're going to work in the mill. Take that away and just tell people you've got a brain. And the scope's enormous and it's so recent all around the world to do this. Sometimes, in, especially in this kind of news cycle, you don't see anything for optimism. Change mm. is happening, but it's harder to sell good news than it is bad news. Yes. But what always concerns me, like I said, is this kind of idea that we we fall back to the kind of s the same notions that we that we keep fighting struggle from. So, for example, like like in Russia, like they have the opportunity to go to be democratic, but they choose another autocrat mm -hmm. who seems to dominate the party. And so it's a similar type of trope that they just got rid of. In the context of the UK, we've chosen someone who's part of the aristocratic elite. Yeah. And, and in America and in Brazil yeah. and in Turkey. And in Turkey. And, yeah. in and, in and this is... This is, it's strange to me. Yeah, but if you want to make me optimistic, if I have a table here of 50 OECD countries, mm -hmm. and I rank What's them, OECD? Sorry, sorry, Danny. Oh, What's sorry. OECD? Uh, OECD? Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, which are the rich countries of the world. Mm -hmm. And I rank the table by inequality. Then at the top, you've got Mexico and Chile, which are poor and actually becoming more, more equal. And then you have the United States, Russia, Turkey, us, Israel. And then you've got the other 40. And at the bottom half of the table, you've got lovely places where everything's just going fine. Mm. Right? There are some really screwed up countries in the world. Mm. And they happen to be the most unequal. Mm. And in Europe, the most screwed up country is the United Kingdom. In the rich world, it's the United States. Um, in, in over towards Asia, it's Russia and Turkey. But these are the exceptions. Okay. Most countries are more equal than them have much more democratic governments, change their governments. In Denmark and Finland, the most recent elections were a huge shock as young people started voting Green because they believe Greta. Mm. Um, it's, if you just look at the worst cases at the worst time, it's easy to think there's no chance. So would you say, statistically then, are you saying like UK and the US, are, are the outliers? There? Yes, okay. massively outliers. So, we're, we're, so the UK is the only country in Europe of 28 uh, EU nations, as it still is right now, uh, where life expectancy is falling and infant mortality is rising. Mm -hmm. Nowhere else. 
Life is Pixie is also falling in the USA. It's like yeah. they're, they're unbelievably. My kind of research, research interest, looking at the far right, the outliers are the main case. Yeah. So they use them as the main case. So the idea, what you're saying, oh, why is it infant, is it infant, infant yeah, mortality yeah. Yeah. and uh, um, death rates of old people? This is what driving the narrative of the far right. So the two yeah. outliers who are historic, well, one's contemporary, the most contemporary, the most powerful, mm. and one is historically the yeah. most powerful. Saying, look at these two places who built empires, they're failing because of this. Yeah. And mass migration and multiculturalism and yeah. all these things. So even though they're outliers statistically, yeah. They use them to make the base case. But it is so mental that like we can have this many wealthy people, we can have that big a wealth divide, and still they manage mm. to put the blame onto people who are least likely to be the ones that are facilitating that. Or even the fact that you know in Britain we managed to, to the most recent wave of racism is to people who are even whiter than most people in Britain, yeah. uh, which did actually show. Yeah, the scope for racism is absolutely <laughs> enormous. The British can be racist to anybody. It's, I mean, it, you do find far right elsewhere. You'll find far right in Finland, mm-hmm. although the Finnish far right are actually quite soft. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say it, but mm-hmm. you know, they're almost pleasant <laughs> yeah, compared to your average conservative yeah. in Britain. Yeah. And of course, you know, the far right did fairly well in France, which is a relatively equitable um, country. But where the far right did best historically was in the two countries that saw the biggest increase in inequality and division in the 30s, which were Japan and Germany. Mm-hmm. Economic inequalities rose and rose, things fell apart. The, the far right are there to mop up when there is a grievance. The story that if you only had a strong leader and you got rid of the others and everybody played their part and knew their place, it would all be okay. And trust me, that story can work when people are clutching for stores other stories work as well mm-hmm. you know if we can all work together nobody needs to own everything mm-hmm. um, but people need different stories when everything's falling apart mm-hmm. uh, and one danger in Britain is everything really is falling apart it's the biggest fall apart we've had for decades and decades but what's nice about it if it's taken so long to fall apart with Brexit that we're left with kind of Tommy Robinson looking a bit stupid mm-hmm with you know threats of riot from brexiteers and people begin to think oh aren't there many of you <laughs> and you're quite old mm-hmm. and and the police are desperate to kettle somebody violent <laughs> because the poor police at the moment are having to stand around extinction rebellion who keep on being so enormously polite to them and it might, i could if i was police i'd be really really frustrated and i'd just be hoping for you know article 50 is cancelled and tommy and his friends come out because you know that frustration of having to stand there and not being able to arrest well only arresting people who want to be arrested yeah uh, it it's a really ironic time time in britain i suppose it takes if if the state is has a monopoly on violence mm. and someone's being non-violent and they're your people yeah in inverted commas like it's difficult isn't it for them it's difficult. Well, we're in a really, really weird position. There used to be a, a sort of book called The Very British Coup about how the establishment <laughs> yeah. would stop a Labour government. We're now in a situation where the establishment may stop a Conservative government. Mm-hmm. Eleven judges vote one way. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was sitting at the top of security services on the banks of the Thames now, thinking about what is the enemy of in, what's the greatest threat to Britain, mm-hmm. um, I would be worrying about the current action to the Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it is utterly bizarre. And in this city... Now, they weren't great in the 70s. The police are one of the more useful things to keep fascists out. And the fact that I can actually sit here and think that the police and possibly the territorial army 
might actually, if there are disturbances, if we delay or don't leave, I th it, it sounds like a weird, slightly, you know, kind of, I've smoked too much fantasy, but it's, but it's not impossible. These are, the, these are the times that we're currently living in. I guess it would be really good, actually, from here, Danny, if we could just roll back slightly, maybe start... I mean, I've seen you give a couple of talks and I always find every time I come out of your talks, I'm always like messaging like family members like, you need to watch Danny Dorlin break down Brexit, break down Brexit, because you do it so clearly and you locate the history, just like we've just done in this discussion now. I think it'd be really good if you talk about like that, that database and then how you track that database up until the voting patterns of the referendum as well. Oh, okay, going doing... back in time. Yeah, I can go you... Yeah, so, okay. so it's sort can, of like well, end of the 80s. Where are we in stop, Britain? Stop me when I get boring. No, um, and then when you're doing your PhD, I think it is, or...? Oh, from the beginning. Yes. Okay, well, they go back. First European elections were around about 1979. Mm -hmm. And they were for just to be... That they were oh. just to send MEPs to Europe because we joined in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And there was a referendum. There was a referendum, 66% supported it but we but we joined not to actually join properly we joined because we saw it as a market we could exploit and so the rest of the European countries you'll see European flags everywhere over time we never put up European flags we were we'd been going downhill economically we were going downhill most importantly because we'd lost our colonies mm -hmm. most importantly India because we tell ourselves a fake history we've never said that's the reason we got poorer I, I, I think that's the first time I've heard someone say it. No, but bloody obvious, isn't it? Right. So, so by the seventies, when the last colonies in Africa are going, and when the trading relationships we had had with India are slowly being unravelled because they didn't have to buy the stuff from us, and when our shipyards are beginning to close, first of all on the client, because who wants to buy a, sh a small ship that isn't that good when you don't have to anymore? And you can get it from Korea. We were a bit desperate, and we blamed it on the trade unions. Um, we blamed, of course, on the immigrants. We always blame things on the immigrants. Um, but we joined the European community then as a kind of, this is going to help us get out of this. Um, and then it didn't, because we chose internally to become more and more divided and more unequal with Margaret Thatcher and so on. However, in 79, nobody voted far right in European elections. In 84, I think it was a tenth of a percent. I think National Front may have had somebody standing... Uh, 89, it wasn't much more. Next one would be in the mid-90s. And Jimmy Goldsmith's referendum party stood. Oh, I remember uh, Jimmy Goldsmith. And sent a, a Max. No, was it VHS video to every household? Yeah. Yeah. UKIP again. Um, 2009, you're getting up to about a fifth of the vote. Mm -hmm. 2014 was the killer that we should have seen. 2014, the Conservative Party had left the normal European Conservatives, uh, who were the EPP, and they'd... Uh, joined an alliance in Europe which included Alternative for Deutschland, who are neo-Nazis, mm. and 52% of people in the European elections in 2014 voted European far-right in this country, which is Conservative, UKIP, various Ulster Unionists and so on, DUP. Um, and it was just there, slow and steady. I didn't see it, it's only after the, the referendum. Mm. This thing is a running sore inside the Conservative Party since John Major, mm -hmm. if not before, uh, because there's a big block in the Tory party who really, really didn't like cooperating with anybody, just want complete control, um, and saw Europe as a kind of antichrist. Because you've got to wait, something kept them going. Um, Cameron thinks he can placate them by having a referendum, pulls it 
carefully at the time when Remain were high up in the vote and only just loses it. It was it was very, very narrow. Um, it may not have happened. And then when we get the vote, the vote is completely misinterpreted. It's misinterpreted not by conspiracy, but because they didn't actually have a script. Because <laughs> the spread betting said that Remain were going to win. And the spread betting had got numerous elections right recently. What's spread betting, Danny? Spread betting is the results of people putting their own money on the outcome. So I could ask... Or you, That's Matt. I, can, I, can, I can ask you three what you think is going to happen when there's an election, right? And you all might give me an opinion. Or I can give you each a thousand pounds and you can bet that. And honestly, if you've got a thousand pounds, or let's make it even more, let's make it a million, mm-hmm. right? You've all got a million, but you can't have it. You've got to bet it on the outcome of the next election. Just think how hard you'd think about it, oh right? God, you'd, yeah. think, you'd think really, really hard. So spread betting uses, uses the results from the bets that people make to say what the likely result of the election is going to be. And it would have been really, really good. And it wasn't that far off, only a couple of percentage points. And would Cameron and his mates be looking at that? Oh, yeah. They were, they were looking. They, they picked. They, they announced the referendum at the time when the odds of Remain winning were, were highest. Uh, Cameron and his mates were looking at it. Nigel Farage was looking at it when, you know, when he actually said he thought, he thought he'd lost. Anyway, so the BBC had no story. The results began to come in. Camera zooms in on a blonde woman and two bald blokes up in Sutherland. <laughs> and because this was a long way away and it was people not like them, they start to tell a story. Now, the problem is that the actual result, which we knew by 24 hours later, was that 52% of people in the southeast had voted leave, despite it having less than 52% of electorate. So, this is a dominated southeast leave vote. Lord Ashcroft did a poll on the actual eve of the vote which he did because he thought that Leave would lose. He was a Leave supporter. And his poll showed that almost 60% of Leave voters were social class A, B, C, 1. The organiser was a Conservative or UKIP. It's old, it's men, it's southern. The old live in the south of England. Working class areas of the north tend to be small, not many people there. Really low turnout, people don't vote. And then, yes, for those people who bother to vote in those small areas, sometimes you've got a high proportion voting leave made no difference to the outcome because there just weren't enough of them can you just say danny i might get you to say it about yeah. four yeah. times yeah. on this podcast yeah. abc abc one yeah who are these people okay. who are the people that yeah. made brexit happen just 60 percent of leave voters abc one yeah uh abc one is a, is the traditional old-fashioned definition of middle class it's a social class system invented in 1911 by stevenson i'm very sad um stevenson was a registered general in 1911 and it was invented uh, to look at infant mortality actually based on it. Uh, a is very posh, like me, mm-hmm. university lecturer. B, slightly less posh, like a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, C1 is skilled, non manual, like a skilled clerical work. C2, which isn't in this group, is to stereotype white van man. Okay. And they, uh, they were the shock troopers or the Thatcher. Oh, Thatcher, C2. So it's yeah. not C2, right? it's ABC1. Uh, D is nasty and horribly called uh, unskilled or less skilled, and e, e is very unskilled. And it's nasty definition because E includes cooking kosher food for three of the kids in the school mm. um, and halal and all that, but apparently that's an unskilled job. Um, but anyway, it's a traditional bog standard British class system definition, and 60% of Leave voters were ABC1. And what's really, really, really remarkable about that, if you're very nerdy, is that we know they're old. And older people tend to be of lower social classes because there were less po- posh jobs in the past. 
So these really were quite posh old people who voted Leave. You know, it, yeah. And they're people who normally, we also know this from the polls, they're people who normally would vote Conservative or UKIP. Right, there's not many Labour voters there. Um, if there are, it's, it's a kind of grumpy old man who had a slightly higher paid job. Yeah, or John Mann. <laughs> yeah. So would you say it's like the, the last gasp of empire, of this nostalgia for like it's the past of glory and all those things that we associate with those that myth of empire it's well yeah it wasn't a myth so if you're going to stereotype I and mean, people have lots of different reasons right mm. so the only thing we can be certain about is the geography yeah. geography 100% we know where they were okay right 60% that is oh no 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 that's, that's from a survey no. Sorry, oh 52% we, we absolutely know it's the southeast. it's places like Hampshire and Devon and so on right yeah. that's not unequivocal the survey uh, the biggest one was 14,000 people and the error is it could have been 59 or it could have been 61 Right, but it's probably sixty percent. But there isn't ever because okay. I get people going. It's only a survey. How many times go? Okay. It's a big survey. Then it gets harder, more speculative. But if you're going to stereotype this group, they're a group who behaved well, did what they're supposed to do. They saved their money. They got a mortgage. They got a house. They got their kid off to university in the eighties and nineties. They live in the south of England. They've got a better job than most people have they it, given their kids money for a house deposit now they're in there not nec- no one? not no no i okay so no i think they're more likely to be the remainers because again look right. at the geography okay so these are the kinds of people who could afford a nice free maybe four bed house on the edge of gloucester um and it may have cost them when they bought it fifty thousand pounds and it may today be worth £320,000. But they ain't got that much spare money. So their grown-up children are renting. Right. And they're okay, grown- so they're not as... Yeah, okay. They're, they're better off than average, but we're not talking the top 10%. The top 10% voted Remain. And the top 10% voted Remain because they're well off. They like going skiing twice a year. It'd be really inconvenient having to show your passport and get a visa. They plan to die in France. Mm. David Cameron's dad died. David's <laughs> dad died. Um, so th- this is, and, we, and we've done it. A lovely, a lovely researcher from Newcastle did this. Divided the country up into ten sets of constituencies, and the poshest ten for solidly remain, like a lot of London, posh London. The next four are leave. So it's people in the top half of society, but not in the best off tenth. Right. That's that's your big middle middle Britain group, and. I've looked and looked and looked at this because, of course, when the stories are coming out, you begin to doubt yourself. But we published all this in the British Medical Journal three weeks after the result. And the, the reason, you might say, why on earth do you publish it in the British Medical Journal? Because in the British Medical Journal, they really check statistics. You're not allowed to be published in it if it's not right because it's a medical journal. Mm. And also, of course, this affects the health service. Yes. affects life expectancy. Um, affects a huge number of things. But no, and, it, and the last thing to say about it, the people who organised this, like Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings, the European Research Group of Conservative MPs, these are all southern-based English Tories. Mm-hmm. This is a Tory project. It's to take back control. One last gasp. Mm-hmm. We can get to the top. Um, even even George Osborne, who opposed there being a referendum. Um, in 2015 he said if we followed his economic plan 
Britain would be the richest large country in the world by 2030. So even George had this fantasy that we had to get back to the days when we were the empire and we were the top. Why is it that what you've just said to us now, Danny, why is it that wherever we go in public discourse, whether it's the media, whether it's academia, whether it's sociology, whether it's geography, that we never hear that? I mean, we do hear it and we we try and bring them on on the podcast, but why is it that the opposite of what you're saying as in the the fact that it happens to be people people that are working class and white or even so just give you an example because i'm interested in him because i think he's crazy but i watched david cameron's thing on iplayer right he still says if i could i don't know who who what they would have voted in sunderland a week after i don't know he still uses that yeah idea of the northern working class voter of the people that got it over the line even though the numbers clearly tell you that yeah. it was not those people no. even him like three years on giving a doing a two-parter on iPlay on reflecting on his life as a prime minister he still is saying that like how it's very comfortable to him um and this has been a it's a long time slog to get this this one out i constantly get people telling me that most black people vote to leave because they know somebody in Bradford who was black and voted uh, it's to just leave. Not, it's just not true. It's not true because all the <laughs> polls we have say majority voted, voted remain. Um, it's comforting. It's, it's, it's a comforting thing. If you, uh, you're Dimbleby on, on the night in the BBC and you've got to make up a story and you're one of, I think it's one of the younger Dimblebees. Um, do you say, actually, it's a generation above me who live in Hampshire and Surrey, and I know them all because I'm there at Christmas who did this. Or, because of course being very English, you don't talk about such things to each other. Mm. Do you say it was those thick northerners, by implication the people with the genes that weren't quite superior as mine, which is why they're still in Sunderland, that didn't quite get it and Mm. voted against their own interests, even though they got a car plant up there. And this stuff about it being Stoke and Middlesbrough and Sunderland at its heart has a nasty little internal white on white racist um, element to it. Yeah. And that Hampshire was Leave Central. That's the centre of, of Sleep, Farnborough. Yeah. 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 And particularly the older people around Fleet. Mm. So not necessarily the ones who are going in on the train from Fleet. Okay. Yeah. But the ones who weren't. So the ones who weren't benefiting from the salaries in London. And for everybody going on the train from Fleet you know, doesn't have a nine or ten or not. Mm-hmm. The one looking after the corner shop. Um, and this is the home counties. This is where you came back from Empire. This is, these are the roses around the cottage kind of place. Um, which had been doing incredibly well for 200 years. That, and, and the story about why they did well was all about their own ingenuity. Mm-hmm. So I don't know... When I was taught history, I was old enough, I was taught O-level. Um, history O-level was about memorising all the things that the British had invented and given to the world. And I had to memorise mm-hmm. them to, to, be able to, to be able to pass and get an, get a, I didn't get an A. That's what I feel like you do really well in the Royal Britannia book, is you sort of map out through education yeah. how we've kind of got where we are as well. Yeah. yeah. And you look, I mean, my friend Sally, who wrote the book with me, she got hold of um, Boris Johnson's prep school school book from the 70s how um because she, she bought <laughs> how? oh not his own not his personal oh one. okay i was like <laughs> no, the textbook the textbook from his school and she knows it's his school because it had the school's name stamped in it 
Uh, she buys second-hand textbooks because what she does is look at a century of... Because it does change how we're teaching. You know, I was talking about an ice age coming because then it was going to get colder, mm -hmm. right? Uh, education changes. Here, the textbook which was used in Boyce's prep school in the 70s, at the time Boyce was there, had the word piccaninnies in it and the word watermelon smiles in the textbook, which I think it's really useful to know. People don't come up with this stuff. You know, Boyce is not that imaginative, right? It's, it's, it's what he was told at school, not just him. Imagine you and all your friends are taught this as just the truth when you are seven, eight, nine years old. Mm. And that's where this has come from in Britain. It's, it's, what you, it's the kind of attitude you had to have to run an empire. Mm -hmm. You couldn't run an empire and expand it by going, everybody in the world's nice and lovely and let's get to meet them. Right. You have to run, a, you run an empire uh, by being more brutal than the other European country trying to run an empire. Mm -hmm. We went really brutal after the American terrorists got their freedom, which is the USA. Um, because, you know, we'd lost a huge territory at that point. Brutal and subtle and clever. And so part of the, t you know, in the hindsight, it's the most successful empire the world's ever known, biggest by far, bigger than all the other European worlds put together. Part of how you do that is have a school and university system which trains young men in particular to absolutely believe in themselves so that they can be in charge of 12 subordinate white officers and go up the Khyber Pass and, and hold it. You, know, so you, you, so you look at our silly public schools now and you sort of say, where did that come from? Mm. It came, Fetters, where Tony Blair went to, that's a military school for, for empire. My department, there was an advert in the Times in 1899 asking for donations to start a geography department at the University of Oxford to train young men in the discipline that they would require to run the colonies. That's, that's where I work but, now. But it's funny to see how those, even... Uh, sorry, I've got to say sorry. one thing. In that advert in the Times, <laughs> and at the end, it says, oh, and we're going to have one special scholarship for poor people at £60. <laughs> so there was widening access in the original advert in 1899. Wow, anyway, sorry. that's mad. But you, that, that same kind of imperial spirit is kind of permeates everything. So you see it in um, the guy who done, uh, I don't know who posted it, when someone said about the, Angela Merkel said, suggested something about mm. the UK in, in the current negotiations and someone posted a tweet about from one about Rook's Drift in the Zulu War yes and you're like what's that? Rook's Drift yeah. well it's Michael Caine it's, yeah. it's a movie there's a historical event but then there's a movie of the historical event and, and the movie has they all die yeah. the British well and they shoot thousands and thousands and thousands of Zulus and there's not many British people and of course all the attention in the movie the, the, the Zulus are just there as kind of cannon fodder it's all about Michael Caine, mm. right? And the British plucky enough. But I was brought up on this. I was brought up on our comics as a boy in Britain. This is the 19, early 70s. I was mm. born in 68. The comics were all about fighting and how we won the Second World War. I had little soldiers. The movies, Bridge Too Far, all of them at Christmas, were all about how we pluckily did it all. And as far as the Empire was concerned... Um, I'm trying to think whether it ever featured. Um, no, just watching West Indies play cricket was about it. Mm. But it's, even though it's never featured, its absence is its feature. Yeah. And and, that, and that's what's quite scary, because like I said, if I speak to grandparents or if I speak to people that came over at that time, they they speak so highly of it. Yeah. And it's weird, because I, I will say to her, well, it's kind of, didn't it oppress you? 
and they, they don't that, that doesn't even feature in the vocabulary no because it was such a privilege to get on the boat and not be somebody who was left in Salette or left in, left in mm-hmm. Jamaica and all migrants are optimistic all migrants have more get up and go than people who stay so you arrive you do your best and and these ways of thinking are incredibly infectious yeah. you know you Imagine it's easy for me now because what I'm telling you is not there's lots of people like me, not mm. enough, I should mm. say, but lots. Mm. But imagine having these ideas in 1970. People would just say, Oh, you're just really you're crazy, you need to be locked up. <laughs> and they did lock a lot of people mm. up in we had lots of mental homes in the 70s. Um, but even but I, I still always try to struggle. Like, I would say to them, But you came over in third class, you wasn't you, you're part of like, <laughs> like furniture and stuff like that. Yeah, like, you were part of the furniture. You weren't allowed onto the upper decks, and you were at sea for six weeks yeah. in that condition. I feel like Stuart Hall talks about this quite well, though, in terms of like actually being the people that were able to come over and mm. that being privileged and being the privileged ones, and then eventually coming here and not being the middle class anymore. And did he? Did he Stuart well, Hall studied here, didn't he? Well, did Stuart Hall I, I, yeah, yeah. Stuart, Stuart, Stuart Hall, I think, got a Rhodes scholarship here. Yes, yeah. Rhodes. Yeah. Rhodes. But, but like I said, I, like <laughs> to come here, but like you, your physical conditions are not. They're actually worse off than they were when you left. Yeah, you come and like I said, when I speak to all of them, their own testimonies, and I'm like, but don't you equate that with oppression? And it's like it's, your mum's a barrel, barrel. Yeah, barrel. barrel, barrel, barrel so, so yeah. my my mum and her sister, they were left to come over with barrels, right? Yeah. So, and you're like, like, can't you see the parallels? But that's that, that's not their experience. That's how, that's not how they will tell the story. No, no, that's not their story. And the, but also their story is partly through you. Because what, what you do if you're a generation who moves and you don't move into the elite, you move into the bottom of society, mm-hmm. is your future is your children. Mm-hmm. And this is okay. a trick we all a trick that's played around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because any society that isn't incredibly equal has a, a lower end, and that lower end is constantly fed by migration in mm-hmm. because people don't want to be there. Yeah, and and the trick for the how you get the migrants in is. is you do the streets paved with gold, but also your children will have a better um, chance. Uh, and then it becomes really tricky because do you tell your mum it's all fed on a lie mm-hmm. when in fact part of what she's doing is going, you're going to do okay, so it doesn't matter that I actually had to be in a damp house and so on for all these years. Mm-hmm. And then you're stuck with, oh no, I've got to make <laughs> mum happy. <laughs> you know? this is, it's a strange thing. I think really, it's trying to come to terms of like trying to explain the nature of the system, right? Mm. But then I've kind of bettered myself through that system. Mm. But when I try to speak on, on their oppression, like I, like I said, maybe in a couple of weeks in the podcast, I tried to have this conversation with one of my great aunts and her response was, to me was, I'm 80. So you, whatever you say so is wrong. It's just yeah. wrong. Like, it's wrong. You have no basis for any argument. I, or it gets really hard when you're 80 and 90. It gets hard at my, you know, in 50s to change your, change your views. But they could have a point. So about less than 10 years ago we got the first statistics through showing that every single uh, ethnic minority group including mixed white Afro-Caribbean boys maybe not gypsies but certainly Bangladeshis all of them I mean it's about 30 all doing better uh, than white English or white British so not all white but the, the is this at primary? GCSE. Oh, it's GCSE. GCSE. Okay. GCSE. When was it? When is this recently? Or no, no, it's a bit, a bit longer than that. They, yeah. So there used to be a myth that there were two kinds of immigrants. Mm. Nasty, nasty little myth, divide and rule myth in Britain. 
there were the clever immigrants who were the Jews and the Hindus, mm-hmm. and then there were slower immigrants who were the Irish and the Caribbean, right? Except the GCSE results now show every single group by ethnicity doing better because you have an advantage if you've been a child or grandchildren of immigrants is, is an advantage because immigrants are not normal human beings. They actually are the ones who, who when there was a choice, chose a thing that's often harder or pushed their way onto the boat and so there's somebody else who didn't get onto that mm-hmm. boat in, in a way. They're also the ones who actually managed to s- survive didn't go back after a year because it was cold mm. um, and it's called the healthy migrant effect so you found it around the world migrants tend to live longer do better than the people they migrate to it's it's far harder to migrate countries than it is to pass an a-level mm-hmm. you know it's huge you've got different culture no backup no kind of collective little set of people to look after you mm-hmm. um but then I guess like where people would interject on that I totally agree with your, what you're saying you definitely see it across yeah. various ethnic minority groups but why is it then that ethnic minority groups still end up being at the bottom massive racism yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah. Just, yeah. just wanted to get you to say no, that no, no, no. no. Yeah. And, it, and it takes quite phenomenal racism that is, it's yeah. so I think more yeah. recently I've been, I go through yeah. stages of like how pissed off I am yeah. with racism but at the moment I'm pretty pissed off particularly with academia and like it's so purposeful it's yeah. so purposeful and I know sometimes I do sound a bit naive when I say this but like it's so um, yeah. built in yeah eugenicism yeah. like Divide and rule, well, like all, all these things. Well, you like, know, so this, this college I've shown you was set up by a bishop to be evangelical lower church of England for a particular thing. This town only has one synagogue. Mm. Um, so I get to, I'm not Jewish, but, and I haven't actually been in it. Um, but it has slightly under 200 members. Oxford shouldn't have just one synagogue. So why does Oxford only have one synagogue? Because Jewish people weren't allowed here until very, very, very recently. Mm. Um, it's... Because the most precious things, which include lots of money, but also your precious, you know, most hierarchical education that's going to let you through, mm. you defend from anybody, and you do it in all kinds of subtle, subtle ways. Mm. And so often you can only see subtle racism through measuring numbers. Mm. It's not, you know, overt obvious racism mm. is obvious, um, but you have to to count. And it's all those exercises. I read one yesterday done in the states of sending identical cvs and so on but just changing a few things so to imply from hobbies that the student might not be white oh so it's not even through last name now like they're doing it through your they're doing it are are you skiing where did you study and and these these people sending identical but just changing a few and finding 12-fold differences in acceptance rates in the States. I'm, I'm trying to track it down. Um, That's mad. So, so, but, well, it, you only need a, a subtle amount of racism continuously to have an effect. So let me just give you a different example. For years and years, we've been trying to explain the North-South divide in health in Britain and why people live longer in the South than the North. And part of it is social class and employment and so on. But we take all that out, and we're still left with a year to explain. Um, and that year appears to be due to differential migration, which is people who are slightly fitter in the north are more likely to move south, and people when their life falls apart in the south are more likely to end up north. 
The effect's tiny, but if it goes on over 70 years, or 75 or 80 of a lifetime, it's huge. And similar with racism, a whole build-up of very small racist decisions can have a huge effect on the statistics in effect at the point of people's lives. So that's what you see them. But it gets tricky to work out what was it. Because each particular incident might not even be aware to any anybody. Um, Except the person that's... Or maybe or, or sometimes not, not, not no, even no, necessarily not, 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 not yeah, even Not even to the person. Um, and maybe not even to the person being racist. Mm. You know, they don't actually know they're doing it. It is subconscious. Um, I mean, the nice thing on this is you can measure when it goes away. Um, uh, and you can compare you know, enough different groups and you, and you can compare. But no, th this is still... I mean, well, there are lots of plus things to Brexit. I mean, so, so, so one plus thing to Brexit is it's not it's it's not difficult for me for me to now say this is a very racist country in many ways, <laughs> because there's a whole set of millions of people being told to go back where they come from, mm -hmm. um, and people being stabbed, in you know, pe people particularly Asian men were stabbed in the seventies, um, several times a summer, but now it's Polish. Yeah, um, I think one of the things. Just, but I just wanted to say one thing before yeah. I get you to talk a little yeah. bit about austerity and its connections yeah. to Brexit. But I think you referring to the violence that we've seen in Brexit is just so important. And I feel like it just gets completely missing from the narrative. Like, again, I'm going to bring it back to this stupid David Cameron um, in, uh, two-part interview and also his LBC interview that he did with um, well for going Nick Ferraro. I, need to, I have to listen to these guys. Um, and didn't once mention Joe Cox. Mm. Not once, a two-hour documentary and a one-hour interview on LBC mentioned every single intricacy of the referendum, mm. build, built up over 10 years, yeah. covered everything, apart from the fact that his referendum caused a far-right terrorist to stab an MP. Yeah. Kill an MP. Kill, kill, an, MP. kill an MP, murder an MP. Yeah, while shouting Britain first. Was yeah. it like, how, <laughs> like... How were they able to? I just can't believe that that wasn't that. I, I get like he's a racist, and whatever David Cameron in his own way, but like really, like that is something that's missing because he's from... got to get through the day, <laughs> and you can't get through the day telling yourself a lot of my life has been a lie. Spent 20 minutes talking about his feud with the Goves, yeah. You can't, like... <laughs> you can't say I only went to that school because my dad put my name down at birth. You can't say a third of the boys from that school went to Oxford and Cambridge, it wasn't that hard. Mm. You can't say I got my first job because it was a setup, even though the entire world knows about the, the, the job. People never talk about privilege. Mm. It's embarrassing to talk about privilege. Why? Because it's, it's, it's sense that if you said a lie, it's, we are a meritocracy and mm. all this kind of stuff, it's part of that. that. So what, what uh, Cameron does apparently say quite a lot about in his book is how that one of the second best day, he remembered to say the best day was marrying Sam, but almost forgot. <laughs> but the second best day in his life was when he had his interview here and got in. And that's worth looking into in detail yeah, because that was accreditation. That was... I am special, especially than the other boys at Eton as well. Mm. Um, but I would, I would look if you want, look at one part in this book, the how important that, you know, to say, the best day in my life was when I got into university. Right, honestly, there's a whole lot of good days I've had in my yeah. life. But I can't even remember. <laughs> Not yeah. than I really. Yeah. 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 Right, but it really mattered to him, and it, and it is that problem, of, and you've got to put yourself in their shoes. It's slightly to like To Kill a Mockingbird, mm -hmm. right? 
try and put yourself in Dave Cameron's shoes. You've got to get up every day. You've got these whole loads of big decisions to make. The security services are telling you all kind of stuff. It's not easy. Um, your family probably say you're not getting enough attention. Um, and you've got to think. It's really hard to do that and not think, I'm the man to be here. I should be here because it shouldn't be somebody else because mm. they're not good enough. Mm. Um, so I, th I think if you try and put yourself in his shoes, it's easier to see. Mm. I don't know though, Danny, because I try I try to do this with these people. I do, I mm. promise you, like I know mm. you hear me on the podcast mm. slate these people, but I really do try and think, okay, why has he come to that conclusion? But the missing Joe Cox from your entire thing, like, is she even in the book? I'm wait I, I can't read the book myself, but I'm waiting for someone to read it to tell me if she's in the book, but I've got a feeling she's not in the book. There's that, and there's also like your reflections from your time. Like, surely that's your opportunity to show vulnerabilities. But no, still, like that's not your time to show vulnerabilities. You the only vulnerability you're you gonna... don't show vulnerabilities if you went to a school which was designed to stop boys showing any vulnerability. Yeah, and, 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 you know, never right, apologise, yeah. son, and never say sorry. But but this is again this. I think this is it's been similar. So I think that Trump kind of exemplifies this as well. The idea that. I was destined to rule, mm. yeah. and you are my inferiors. And to us, it was especially you brought up, especially mm. for my school, in, in the idea of brought up in the idea of meritocracy and equality. Mm. It seems quite jarring to see someone quite say the complete opposite. Oh no, no, no! He thinks of it as meritocracy. It's yeah. just of all human beings on the planet, the superhuman is Trump in his head mm -hmm. the one with the most beautiful most talented most mm -hmm. and so it's, it is a meritocracy and it's work because he's at the top oh, okay. but, but take Theresa May mm -hmm. um, when Theresa May gave that speech when everything fell off the wall and, mm -hmm. and, and her voice went oh, God. nobody looked at the speech and it's really worth looking at that speech about five minutes in she talks about herself and her own life and she says how both her grandmothers worked in service they were both maid servants and her grandfathers had poor jobs but then she goes, but three of my cousins became professors, three, and I became Prime Minister. Now, I'd love somebody to tell me what the possible reason for her saying this was. The only reason I can think it's relevant for her saying that three of her cousins became professors is she's trying to say, inside my grandmothers and my grandfathers, there were these special genes <laughs> that revealed themselves Hi. in the true brilliance yes. of my cohort of Mays. And I'm destined to be Prime Minister because I should have gone to Oxford and I should have done all this and I should be in charge of you because I'm better. And, by the way, my three genetically connected cousins also have shown this. Why, yeah, why else is she, she saying her cousins? Why is she yeah, mentioning her three why cousins? She... And this is, for, for people who are right-wing, who believe in strong leaders and a few at the top, they all have to tell themselves a story about their innate superiority. And they often do it, not publicly, so privately, believe me, because I work here, mm. pri <laughs> privately, there will be self-affirmation stories about the best and the best, the golden children, the, the whatever. Publicly, you tell people you care about them, you want the best for them. You don't say, like Boris Johnson did, um, there are top cornflakes, but most of you essentially are too stupid to govern. Um, but that, that is the fundamental... And it's different. I have a fundamental belief in equality. Mm. I was brought up with it. It's what I experienced. I was lucky enough to go to a normal school. I was privileged enough to go to a school which was normally mixed with people. Mm. Um, and it's quite hard to do that and believe what they believe. But also, you could have taken little Danny, and if you'd put me, put my name down at Eton when I was born, 
and put me through a prep school and sent me down at 13 through to 18, I almost certainly would be a different kind of person with different views. So... And you would be. Marlborough th- School for Girls. Do you think? Yeah. I don't know. I d- yeah, I mean, I did grow up with quite a lot of people with opposing views to me but my mum and dad very Mm. much shaped my also sense Mm. of yeah wanting equality but I guess this might be a good way for us to sort of finish a little Mm. bit on we talk a a lot on the podcast about austerity um, but sort of in more anecdotal terms and like how it's affected our family Mm. where we grew up um, particularly black people black women Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk to it a bit in terms of Brexit but also give us some concrete facts about not what the, the effect of austerity where we are now okay well it begins it begins really 210 i mean the crash was 2008 uh, t was working in the banks then weren't you t i was yeah I do was. you remember the day i do yeah. uh, was everyone going mad no i was just annoyed at customers ringing me up like customers like corporate customers ringing me and saying well it's your fault i'm like no i did i i write deals but i don't yeah. okay them yeah yeah so the people who were way above me, they had fled. They all left. Did they leave? Oh. They left. I didn't get bonus for two years. Two years they didn't get bonus for. Our, but they were getting paid still. Yeah. And everyone, I was getting all the shit. But you wrote this deal. Yeah, I did write it. But you told me you had the money. Yeah. And I underwrote the deal. Yeah. People okayed it. All I did was just write the facts down, as you told me. Yeah. No, it was incredible. And it really did come out of the blue. I mean, you know, there are a few people, and Pitfall's lovely... Uh, who sort of say they saw it coming. They always come, but honestly, it, it was out of the blue. It was massive. All governments did bailouts to keep the cash points working if they could. Mm-hmm. Under Labour, Gordon Brown, through 2009-10, kept everything on, on the roads. Coalition comes in, and well, the first thing the coalition do, there's a secret deal between Clegg and the Tory government, and bang in, you get £9,000 fees when they promise not to do that. That's austerity for the posher half of society. Oh, can we roll back to actually, Danny? What about the little letter that, that someone left in the Treasury? Like, there's no money. That was burn, wasn't it? Yeah. The, 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 there's no money. It was a bit silly of him to leave that. Why did he do that? Childish. Childish so MP. pathetic. I know. It was meant as a joke. He left a letter saying there's no money left. This was stupid. If you look at other European countries, of which the most extreme is Finland, they actually increased taxation after the economic crash so that no public service had to be cut. Mm-hmm. Anyway... We get a coalition government. The Liberals are not normal European Liberals because this isn't a normal European country. So our Liberals are essentially Conservatives. Our Conservatives were essentially far right. Um, (laughs) David David Cameron has a competition. The competition is who can cut the most. And if is, it, is this a, is this a, a fact? This is a fact. And if you, if as a minister you could offer more cuts than any other minister, you could join what's called the Star Chamber. So at one oh, point, Danny, I can't, this is I true. can't handle so this. That's so British. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine to do it. Thinking, yeah. listen, chaps. Yeah, just with the empire. Listen, chaps, we're going to do this. We're going to do chaps. this. We're, going to, we're not just going to cut an austerity. We're going to have a competition. Oh, who can cut the most? And we get it's an elite club. It's a club within yeah. a club. So I thought what, I knew the worst bit. Right, okay. so, so one minister was going to privatise the National Forest. That, that was stopped. They were going to cancel the census. Luckily, it turned out, and that was a cabinet officer, Mr. Francis Maud, I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, the contracts had already been done for the census with American armed companies, ironically. And American arms companies are very good at putting clauses in the contract, so we didn't lose the census last time. Anyway, the ministers who managed to cut the most, this is in the end 40% from local government, get to be in the star chamber in, in a cabinet. 2010-2011. We begin to get sanctions on benefits. 
2012 is when we've already seen very large numbers of adult social workers sacked. Life expectancy drops for elderly women by five weeks. 2013, the sanctions for these are people not making their interviews for benefit claims are bigger than all the um, fines levied by magistrates, courts in England and Wales, and all the sheriffs' courts in Scotland. Sarah Teffer resigned 2014 in tears because she can't do it anymore. And we come up to a 2015 election, having done the fastest um, and most deep set of cuts we've ever done. Education. Education cut per head, because why do you want to waste money on children who are not special? Because if they were special, their parents would have got themselves a better job and they'd put them in a private school. Brilliant. Um, but, you know, but, but they do a lot about social mobility because they do want to pluck out the... They don't want to miss one clever one. Yeah. <laughs> um, partly because you never know what that clever one might do if you don't get them out. Um, education is cut. Of course, universities are almost entirely privatised. <clears throat> Nowhere else in Europe has this happened. Health service funding is not rising at the rate that it, that it needs to. Um, so the people are backed up in trolleys. But more importantly, social work and adult social services are gone, so you can't get them out to a nursing home. 2015, uh, big rise of death. We don't know about that until the rise of death is released. The date on which the death figures are released every year is the 23rd of June. The uh, referendum was held on the 23rd of June 2016, and the biggest rise in mortality in post-war Britain is announced the same day as the referendum result. Complete coincidence, nobody noticed. And then it gets worse and worse uh, and worse. This is a big austerity in Greece has had to suffer. It's real drops in real terms in wages for the large majority of people. Majority of children, almost a majority of children in Britain no longer have a single holiday ever a year anymore. An increasing number of parents say that they don't need one because they can't remember what a holiday was like. Uh, and you can go, it gets depressing, you can go on and on and on with it. Entirely done out of choice, and all the time we're cutting taxes. Cutting corporation taxes, cutting, cutting other taxes. Um, and we're heading really rapidly to become like the United States of America, and the outlier country in Europe. And we're seeing homelessness rise and rise and rise, so on these streets, not very far away from here, um, last Christmas, over half a dozen people died, and it it goes on. It gets very, very, very depressing. Danny, but so how do you remain so optimistic then? Obviously, you're looking at data and statistics, right? Yeah. So you're driven. It's, it's you're, the weird thing I do. Yeah, yeah. Empirical data, right? Mm. So you're looking at facts. Yeah. So within this, where do you find? Where's the hope? Where's the hope? The hope is in many other countries in Europe. Europe is home to the most successful, most equal countries in the rich world. Mm-hmm. And we're that near to it. It's to do with education. I'll give you an example, which did make me sad when I did it. I had to do a talk at my school I went to. I went to the average school in Oxford, uh, where just half a dozen used to go to university. And now 250 kids go to university. And they go to normal universities, half of them. Mm. And I did a talk on Valentine's Day last year. Mm. And I had to tell them, because two of the kids who died, adults who died, homeless, had gone to that school. Mm-hmm. And I had to tell the kids, you're actually more likely at the moment to die homeless on the streets of Oxford than you are to go to my university. That's the way things are now. Mm-hmm. But there's no need for you to let it carry on being like that. Mm-hmm. Because they're all going to another university. Mm-hmm. And it's not just people who go to universities. Um, my, my son ain't going to university. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. It's so stupid. It's so wrong. It's so entirely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Nowhere else in Europe other than Germany has this number of homeless. 
So to, for people to believe, and the only reason Germany does is because of 1.5 million Syrians, <laughs> right? some of whom are on the streets. Yeah. Or put it another way, a really, really easy way to be optimistic. We're like the thickest kid in class. Mm. Out of a class of 28 countries, we're at the bottom in all <laughs> kinds of things. But the only way is up. What almost <laughs> always happens when you're at the bottom is, it's actually not saying we could get to the middle, mm. right? But honestly, the amount of effort and nastiness and evil to be as crude about it, it takes to keep things this crap is enormous. Mm -hmm. It's really, really hard. Life expectancy can't carry on going down in Britain. But this doesn't happen anywhere, you know, for any length of time outside of the pandemic or disease or war. Mm. Um, these statistics are so bad, uh, I, sus I suspect life expectancy will finally rise again in 2019. They're so bad. It's like the kind of evil twins in a movie winning continuously. It can't carry on forever. But I, what I always found historically for me is that Britain's quite good at keeping European ideas away from Britain. Mm. So from the French Revolution onwards, we're like, we're like, yeah, we'll, we'll be monuments to say how good we are at keeping yeah. out foreign ideas. We'll try, we'll try and do that. But also, it hasn't been that long since we were top. But there aren't many places you can look at in the world mm -hmm. which were number one. The United Provinces and the, and the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, and they were a bit screwed up in their heads for a couple or three generations after being the richest place before they've become, you know, not perfect, mm -hmm. but Dutch people know not to work on Friday afternoon. It's kind of sensible things like that. Mm -hmm. um, have a housing system which largely works. Half their population walks on cycles to work. Mm -hmm. It You don't go from the kind of mentality you need to an empire to become normal in just three or four generations. That's what we've learned. It takes longer. Mm -hmm. And the really optimistic thing or not, but it's going to be worse for the Americans. <laughs> it's going to take them, take them even longer, isn't it? I, I suppose I've never looked at it in terms of uh, ideas and mindsets. And I suppose, mm -hmm. like, if you take it back to our kind of sociological kind of roots, is like looking at kind of Weberian ideas of mm. mindsets. Yeah. I think that's quite instructive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I am optimistic, and it's partly statistically, maintaining this particular ranking is, is not that easy to do. Wealth inequalities. House prices have been falling in London since August 2016. Mm -hmm. Only rich people own a house. Mm -hmm. They're now falling in the outer south-east. That's actually a reduction in, in, in wealth inequalities. Mm -hmm. And also this helps brilliantly expose the beliefs of people in power. Before the referendum, David Cameron could look like he cared. He could hug a huck, Huxley, who, you know, sorry, whatever, whatever dog he hugged. Um, <laughs> he, he didn't wear a tie, mm -hmm. he unbuttered his shirt. Um, he was like that boy from the posh public school you might oh quite God, want to know. He jumps up on the stage and like rolls off his, oh God, yeah, I can't. All that kind of thing. But then right? equally, like I couldn't stand Theresa May, like seeing how yeah. she responded, for example, to Grenfell. Like yeah. it's sort of those two polar yeah. opposites that now, just make me feel sick. But without Grenfell, she could look quite, when they're exposed for not being incredibly competent. Which she was on a number of occasions. She was enough from certainly Boris's being but also, you know, Gordon Brown was and Tony Blair. And this country that so believes in strong leaders and in a particular way of voting, which will produce one in, rather than normal European PR voting, eight, ten political parties, always coalitions. It's a little bit more boring. It works. And you don't do really, really stupid things. 
and you don't have aircraft carriers and you don't have nuclear missiles and you <coughs> teach history properly you don't than, need burning buildings with yeah that, or leave all that all the cladding up and all the other yeah. ones but, yeah. but this is the thing I think it's driven by so much by these kind of personalities and again it, for me it, it's very consistent with UK history personalities strong kings yeah, yeah strong, great, great leader history. great ministers and or great prime ministers mm. no one remembers like spencer percival but you yeah. remember like winston Ch- and it's a very it's a very british kind of thing yeah and but it's also like a very roman kind of thing yes i remember the romans had an empire mm-hmm. this is a, the same way way of doing it whereas I mean, i'm currently doing quite a lot of work on finland and the fascinating thing about finland which is the most successful country in Europe in the world on 102 measures of statistics. Mm-hmm. Babies are twice as likely not to die in Finland and the school system is best in university in the world and then hierarchical and so on and so on and so mm-hmm. on. When you look at Finnish history, there aren't names. It's not there, there aren't, there's hardly any names. It is, this happened and then this happened. It was a bit crap. And then the Swedes invaded, then the Russians invaded. <laughs> then we had to ally ourselves to the Germans during the war because everybody else yeah. was our enemy. Mm. Uh, and then we got together and then we made some compromises. And not. And then we had this wonderful leader and this wonderful leader. Uh, and what's Finland got now? It's got a country that spends more money on the bottom quarter of kids than any other, which, has, which is the obvious thing you should do in an education system. Spend the most on the quarter who are struggling the most. The others will look after themselves. <laughs> And they and then when they leave school, they can speak six or seven languages apart from everything else. Okay. We are going to have to, even though like it kills me to do this to finish. I could speak it for ages. I could speak it for ages. Yeah. I love history and facts. Yeah. <laughs> just, just quickly, Daddy, when's the election going to be, and who's going to win? Oh, uh, very quickly. Because so, I thought, because we put this in in the summer, right? Yeah. And there was rumours that there was going to be an election tomorrow. So yeah. I thought we were going to be doing like an election special. I'll give you, can but, I give you two options? It'll either be uh, December if Labour don't get its act together, or if Labour do get its act together, it could be all the way to June. Because <gasps> they can keep Boris in, let him, him hang out to dry, as slowly people really realise what a muck-up this is. Because the nice thing about the Fixed-Term Parliament Act is that if you're a minority Tory government, you can't choose when the election is. And it was a Tory Act. But more likely probably December. But I would really push it to June. Um, And we're not going to... Are we going to leave the EU on the 31st of October? uh, No, we're not going to leave unless we're completely mad. Um, It's almost impossible that we're going to leave then. Uh, It's going to be strung on. Even though they're saying that we are... Yeah. There's adverts everywhere. There's adverts everywhere. They're saying uh, we honestly can't leave, and the banks won't remain solvent. And of course, the housing market's already falling. If it falls further, the banks rely on the housing market for their solvency, so they fail the Basel rules. Basel, yeah. Um, There's all that going on. Who will win if the Liberal Conservatives and the Conservatives and the Brexit Conservatives all stand and split the Conservative vote three ways? Bloody brilliant. Because then yeah. we get, because and then yeah. maybe they make a deal, so we change the voting system. And then, and my ideal is we get an SNP Labour coalition. And the reason I would like an SNP Labour coalition is a lot of Labour policy hasn't been thought out that carefully. But if you're in a coalition, you can actually think about it all over again. Yes. Um, and I quite like the SNP. They Scotland's done really well. So I quite like the SNP. Do you know what? You actually make me feel very optimistic. I need to see you once a week. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so I don't feel bad all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>
thank you so much for joining thank us, you. Danny. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. Please like, rate and subscribe. You can also find more of us on Twitter and Instagram.